With your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor, Matt Moniz, done with his roadie chores. <laughs> <laughs> back, on the, uh, back on the easier side of the rock and roll life, that of the fan. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you, you look like you've barely caught up on all the sleep. And I've been going ever since then, too personal stuff hey that's what happens especially this time of year yeah happy holidays to everyone happy hanukkah to our jewish listeners and our jewish friends and family of mine it's uh what the second night or the third night i should know this but uh <laughs> i think it's just second night today. i thought it started today. i thought it started the other day started friday i don't know oh. my wife always says she's going to make uh, potato latkes because it's one of the few jewish foods that she got to uh sample while my grandparents were still with us and and she wants to try and make it and i i try to talk her into you know that's kind of like the easy thing i'm like all right how about the kugel you know how about the uh knishes, all that stuff but sooner or later i'll, I'll have her make some we'll bring it and we'll have a little sample during the show but tonight we're gonna have a how a, about meatballs she'll make those anytime oh cool so uh tonight we have a, a great show lined up for you we have one of our all-time favorite guests one of my idols somebody whose work i admire greatly we have jim mars joining us in just a few minutes and uh, for those of you who are familiar with Jim's non-fiction work such as Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy and uh, Alien Agenda, The Terror Conspiracy, all these great books, Sci Spies which we had him on before to talk about all these great non-fiction works that he's put out now he's actually published his first novel, The Sisterhood of the Rose and I'm already into it, I'm, uh, I'm about a quarter of the way into it and I'm loving it this is a, a great book, it takes just the kind of stuff, the kind of information that you know that Jim has and weaves it into a terrific story. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk to him about, because the book centers around the idea of the Nazis and their search for various occult objects and to gain power through that world, through the metaphysical world, we're going to talk about the Nazis and their obsession with that. Because I watched a special, oh, uh, maybe about 10 months ago or so on the History Channel talking about this, and I said to Matt Costa, I said, uh, you know, we we need to find somebody that can come on and talk about this stuff. And then I immediately slapped my forehead right away and said, well, Jim Mars. And uh, now that he's written this novel, we, we have him here to talk about it. So it's going to be a, a fascinating discussion. You can join in at any time just by calling in 508-996-0500 or toll-free 1-877-996-1420. We'll also take emails during the show, Spooky Crew. At SpookySouthCoast.com, if you have a question and you either don't feel comfortable or you can't get to the phone and you want to just uh, email it in, you can do it that way as well. It's, there's, there's so many ways to get involved in the discussion. How can you not? And uh, last week, you know, we had a number of uh, callers who um, took part with John Lucas in his uh, Beyond Healing approach where he deletes frequencies for pain. And if any of you... Uh, 
you know, had a positive experience from that or a negative experience or you just want to let us know how it worked out for you, email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com and we'll, we'll, we're very anxious to find out because I can tell you, you know, my foot cleared up a few days later. I don't know if it's necessarily related to that because I did have a little bit more pain that night, but you never know. It was, uh, interesting nonetheless. Mm. And Moniz, you weren't here, so, uh, he immediately made the biggest pain in my neck. Uh, feel a lot better. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get right into the discussion with Jim Mars. After graduating with a degree in journalism from the University of North Texas, he served in the U.S. Army, after which he became a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and he worked for and owned several Texas newspapers before becoming an independent journalist and author. Uh, his book, Alien Agenda, has been cited as the best-selling nonfiction book on UFOs in the world and has been translated in several languages. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Crossfire, the Plot that killed Kennedy, which was the basis for the Oliver Stone film JFK. And now he's joining us on the line to talk about his new book, The Sisterhood of the Rose. Good evening, Jim. How are you? Hey, Tim. Here we are again. Oh, yeah. We're so thankful you could join us. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, you're one of our favorite all-time guests. And I'm so excited that you're getting into the work of fiction here. Is this <laughs> is this uh, something that you've been wanting to do for a long time? Yeah, uh, actually, and, and of course, I've been revised against it because they said, you know, if you ever write a book of fiction, then from then on, everybody will say, oh, he just makes all this stuff up. And of course, uh, you're, you're already a fan. You've read several of my nonfiction books, and you, you know that I don't just make stuff up. I, everything's fully footnoted, documented, you know, attributed. There's, there's something going on there, but <clears throat> in trying out my hand at, uh, well, actually, I call it faction. <laughs> it's fact-based fiction. Sure. <laughs> and uh, and I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you got into it a little bit because uh, I think you can see where I'm kind of kind of merging uh, the knowns and the unknowns. Um, and you know, Tim, this really isn't anything new. I think you might agree with me that uh, we actually oftentimes get more truth through music. Movies, <laughs> mm -hmm. TV series, etc., uh, because then it gets past the gatekeepers, and they go, "Well, it's just fiction. Nobody paying attention to it." And you can actually tell the truth. Um, you know the difference between fiction and nonfiction? What's that? Well, fiction has to make sense, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's that's very true. Uh, if I went to a Hollywood producer and said, "Hey, I've got a great story here about," Uh, about how that uh, uh, this Muslim fanatic with a laptop in a cave in Afghanistan directed some of his minions to hijack uh, uh, four-plane commercial airliners with little box cutters and overcome a $40 billion defense system, and all of uh, the uh, interceptors are all off somewhere else and out of place, and, and they managed to crash into... To three buildings in in uh, prominent buildings in the United States, they, they throw me out of the office. They say, "Ah, come on, <laughs> that say, can't happen." They'd either say that can't happen or save it for Van Dam. <laughs> right? Because none of yeah. his movies made any sense either. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I guess Van Dam could have probably made that one work. <laughs> the other good thing, though, about fiction is it allows you to present a lot of the information that you may have in a way that. Um, you know, the general masses might not normally pick up a nonfiction book. You're kind of publishing to a select audience with that. But when you can weave a, a good story around it, as you've done with this book, then it's going to, you're kind of sneaking that information into people's heads, too. 
Well, that's right. I, I guess I kind of learned my lesson from Dan Brown. Uh, you know, in a court case in England, he uh, he stated uh, in court that he had read my book, Rule by Secrecy, and had used that a lot of that material as the basis for his phenomenal success, the Da Vinci Code. In fact, the whole idea, the reason he was in court was because he also uh, had read a book written by some English authors named called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, mm-hmm. and they had actually filed suit on him saying he'd plagiarize them. Of course, they didn't understand that plagiarism is when you totally lift the uh, stated word, written word, and then present it as your own. Uh, they didn't quite understand that you cannot copyright information. You know? yeah. And so, of course, he got off. But I thought it was interesting. He said he'd read my book, Real by Secrecy, which took me many years to research and about a year to write. And it did pretty well. I don't want to downplay it too much. It hit the New York Times bestseller list. But it didn't go up there and stay up there like Dan Brown's did. And so I went, oh, I see. you got to tell them a story. <laughs> you gotta give them some, you gotta give them some sugar coating to make the pill go down. Well, so. I, I, I've mentioned here on the show before that I actually read Angels and Demons, uh, when it first came out. I, I was just an impulse buy at the supermarket. Uh, I just grabbed it off the shelf because I was into that type of story. Right. And this was long before the Da Vinci Code came out, so, uh, you know, I, I read it and I was like, well, this is great. It's really interesting stuff, but I don't know how true it is. And even so, this guy has a lot of, you know, there's a lot left to be desired as a storyteller a little bit. Right. And then when the Da Vinci Code came out, I was like, wow. Yeah. Well, and, and in fact, right now I'm into his latest novel, The uh, the Lost, Co- Lost Symbol. And uh, he's really honed his uh, talent for writing fiction. Uh, I think I still have a way to go, but uh, at least I can string some words together. Uh, and you're absolutely right about telling stuff through fiction. Uh, in my New York Times bestseller, The... Uh, Rise of the Fourth Reich, nonfiction book. I do touch on uh, how the Nazis uh, gained uh, Solomon's treasure in southern France in March of 1944. But because details are sketchy and there wasn't, and nobody much knows about that, and there was very few sources to quote from, uh, it was pretty sketchy. So in the Sisterhood of the Rose, you're right. This gave me the opportunity to to go into more detail, explain how it got to southern France from the Holy Land, and and uh, talked about the Knights Templars and the Mary the Magdalene and Rennes Le Chateau, and a, a lot of those topics that uh, when you try to dig in and, and get to the absolute base truth, you just find yourself, you know, mired down in uh, all kinds of controversy and missing stuff and gaps in the information. So, you know, if you're able to just tell it as best you know it, uh, it's, it's, it was really pretty exciting. And when you're able to develop a character who is uh, in the process of learning this information, uh, then it also gives the audience a conduit so that they kind of, they can take it in at their own pace and at a similar pace and see how it does all come together and make sense. Exactly. They learn along with the characters, you know. And then that's another thing, too. This was actually one of the hardest books I've ever tried to write because I felt like I was really hamstrung. Uh, let me explain. About ten years ago, I met a woman named Celeste Levesque. And uh, a few years before that, she had had a near-death experience. And following that experience, she uh, began to have conscious memories of this past life. So she began to tell me about all this past life and how she'd been in Europe during World War II and, and they'd founded this Sisterhood of the Rose. And I, I listened to her, you know, for a number of years 
And I thought, you know, how am I ever going to prove all this up? How can I document all this? I mean, it was all secret to begin with, and most everybody involved in it is probably already dead. And, you know, and I finally just said, you know, this is a good story, and it needs to be told. So that's kind of what put me on the path to writing uh, Sister of the Rose. But then when you when you decide that you want to tell the story in that way, you have to start creating you know characters that come across as flesh and blood to the reader yes when you know normally you're used in used to dealing with historical figures in your writing right exactly and uh as you as you've already found out uh i've got a lot of historical figures in the sister of the rose mm-hmm. uh you know uh, uh hemingway ernest hemingway and and uh martha burke white ava brown uh uh, John Malone, who was the uh, acknowledged father of the French Resistance, and then his murderer, Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon. And so there, there, there's a lot of real real people in there. And that was another problem, though. First, I had to stick with pretty much with Celeste's story, because it was her story and it was her character. And then, But then I was stuck with history. I mean, you know, we invaded at Normandy on June the 6th, 1944. You can't get away from that. And... Uh, uh, other things I had to stick with, uh, Jean Milan was captured towards the end of the war and, and, uh, the person responsible for his death was, uh, Klaus Barbie. And so I had them in there. I had to have the real people, I had to explain who they were. Otto Scorzini was a very real person. He was Hitler's top commando. And, um, then, for example, uh, most people kind of know about the strange flight of Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess, to uh, England in May of 1941. But they don't really quite understand what that was all about. And uh, this gave me an opportunity to explain a lot. It was the result of a British intelligence operation in which, according to actual history, they used an unnamed French astrologer and put this person in touch with Karl Haushofer. That was uh, Rudolf Hess's astrologer and convinced him that the time was propitious for um, Hess to fly to England and conclude a peace between Germany and England so that they could both turn and stop the invasion of Europe by Stalin. Um, involved in that operation was Ian Fleming, who wow. you may who you may recognize the name as being the author of all the James Bond novels. Mm-hmm. And he was in British intelligence. He was involved in this operation. And so everything about that was basically historically factful. Uh, the only fictional part of that was since the French astrologer put in touch with uh, Hess's astrologer was never identified, I just made, him, made her Giselle my heroine, okay? <laughs> so that's why I call it faction. It's fact-based fiction. It, but th- that must have been one of the hardest things to do is to kind of uh, hu- humanize people who have been made to be seen as inhuman monsters. I mean, you have Himmler and you have Hitler as characters in the book, and you know you have Hitler tinkering around with an engine on a car, and you know you're portraying them as actual characters, and, and that must be really hard to try to get inside their head and give them a voice. Well, you know that scene where Hitler is looking at this new Mercedes race car. Uh, that wasn't just made up. That was an actual uh, incident that took place. In fact, it's really interesting what he said, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember what his exact words were, but uh, he was told that this thing would go like 300 miles an hour or something like that. 
and he said something to the effect, he said, well, you know, this is the perfect machine for the modern man because it doesn't give you time to think, you only react, okay? And, you know, I got thinking about that, and I'm going, yeah, this guy really, <laughs> he might have been a monster, but he sure, had a, he sure had a head for what was going on because think about today in our super-fast, frenetic society, we usually don't have time to stop and think about what we're doing or what's going to happen or what the ramifications are. We just rush ahead and make decisions. And, you know, it's like you're driving down the road. You're going 70 miles an hour. You ain't got time to stop reflect on <laughs> what's happening. You just have to kind of react and, and uh, go with your instincts, go with the, the uh, uh, force, if you will. Not only that, too, but when... Uh, a piece of machinery like that is working the way it's supposed to work, and it's working at peak efficiency. If humans start thinking and getting involved with it, they're just going to mess it up. <laughs> exactly. I'll give you a classic example. And this is for true. This is in the book. This is, But, you know, we've got these computers today that operate in nanoseconds, and we're always looking for ways to make them faster and, and all like that. And yet, think about it. We're using a keyboard that was specifically de- designed in the late 1800s to slow you down when you <laughs> type. Because they do, and I can remember when I started off in journalism, we were using old mechanical typewriters, and if you started typing too fast, those keys would jam up, yep. you know? So they designed the keyboard to separate a lot of the letters that you use most often, so it'll slow you down. So here we have these supercomputers, and we're still using a keyboard designed to make you go as slow as you can. Isn't that, isn't that weird? <laughs> it's because we're, we're afraid to make the leap into direct thoughts into the computer. We're afraid of that for some reason. Yeah, yeah I can see that, too. <laughs> I, 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 can see, I can see the problem there, you know. I could be trying to write some heavy nonfiction-type material, and, and, and all of a sudden my thoughts are going as... Uh, you know, I'd type it away, and then all of a sudden it says I need a beer. <laughs> you know? Actually, it sounds like something out of more like William Gibson than uh, than Jim Mars. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with uh, the one thing though that you realize when when you're reading, and I don't want to give away too much of the story because people should definitely pick up Sisterhood of the Rose, uh, read it for yourself, pass it on to a loved one because it's it's I'm I'm loving it, but. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Tim. It, actually, I think I think I, I'm hoping that this would appeal actually to a pretty broad audience because I think anybody interested in World War II, they'll love it. Mm-hmm. Anybody interested in the Nazis and how they did all this occult stuff and how they might have ended up with Solomon's treasure of all things, they're going to love it. People who are into uh, the uh, energy and the power of the feminine aspect of humanity, I think they're going to go for it. And uh, I don't know. I just think it's a rollicking good story. It absolutely is, and it does touch upon all those things. Uh, not Like I said, not to ruin the story, but es- essentially the Nazis come into possession of an object that gives them great power, and it kind of is used as an explanation as to why they were able to advance their forces so quickly and why they were able to, inv- when they invaded France, you know, they, they kind of just bulldozed through everything at that point. And until yeah, you, they were riding high there for a while. It seemed unstoppable. W- but without putting that object into their possession and just looking back at history in general, you start to scratch your head and wonder, gee, I wonder why they did do it so fast. Exactly. Exactly. And I tell you what, I did. This is touched on in Sisterhood of the Rose and, pre- and very, very uh, documented detail. One of the things that always bothered me about World War II was Operation Barbarossa. Uh, that was Hitler's invasion of Russia in June of 1941. And uh, 
for one thing, he wrote several times in his book, Mein Kampf, he said Germany must never again get involved in a two-front war. And yet in June of 41, he turned and he attacked Russia, and he had not completely defeated Britain. So he set himself up for this two-front war, the very thing that he himself said they must never do. And so I'm going, what's that all about? And so when you study and find out what's really going on, it's an amazing story. It was a uh, preemptive strike. He had gotten word that Stalin, and this is now coming out, document, documentation coming out from Russia following the collapse of the communism, that Stalin had determined the only way to make Europe communist was simply military invasion. He had 22,000 tanks, many of them the heavy KV models and even a lot of those, the new T-34s, and he was ready to crash right into uh, Europe and just go all the way to the English Channel. Uh, he had millions of men under arms. Uh, he was just and uh, out, you know. The Germans only had 3,600 tanks, and most of them were lightweight tanks because of the Versailles Treaty. So if you're the inferior force and you're about to be attacked by a much uh, superior force, what's your only real tactic? Preemptive strike. Mm -hmm. So apparently Hitler decided he had to strike first and catch them off guard. And as you well know from your history, when they attack through Poland uh, and start moving into Russia, they were scooping up whole army groups, whole divisions, and just encircling whole armies and just cutting through Russia like a hot knife through butter. And it's like, whoa, now wait a minute, against that kind of superior force, how did that work? Well, the answer is very simple. The Russians were not in defensive positions. They were in offensive positions. And that's why they were so easy to uh, outmaneuver and, uh, and to beat in the initial phases of Barbarossa. Fascinating story. Absolutely. Uh, but even more fascinating is, I mean, I've, I've watched a lot of History Channel specials, like I said, about, about the Nazis, about their beliefs. I've read stuff. And, uh, but, but the story of why they believe the Aryan race was the supreme race is even more fascinating when you talk about the subject matter that we talk about here. Right. And, and you mentioned it uh, in, in Sisterhood of the Rose, too. Why did they have this belief that, uh, that the Aryans were the only one true race? Well, because they uh, had this, uh, these legends that their, their ancestors, uh, the Aryans, had come from the mystic land of Thule. Okay, which was to the north, and uh, you know what's really interesting is is that uh, uh, I think everybody gets the idea that they must have been Norsemen or something, you know, from Norway or Sweden or somewhere up north. But uh, if you go and really actually study real history, and you find that the Aryans were first identified in India <laughs> and in Western India, and in what is now uh, current day Iraq. Uh, then all of a sudden you've tied back into the Sumerian civilization and their uh, uh, cuneiform tablets, which are still in existence, and uh, when translated tell us that uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago the Anunnaki came and landed on the earth and began to colonize. So uh, really at the heart of uh, the Sumerian story 
the story of the Aryans who suddenly appeared as seemingly out of nowhere and then did come from the north of uh, Iraq in the Caucasus Mountain regions, uh, then uh, all of a sudden you're basically getting into extraterrestrials. Mm, they're, they're, they believe they were the progeny of aliens. Which... Right, right, saying they're the pl- pure blood, so they're, you know, they're destined to rule. And you know what? It's not just the Nazis. If you go back, you'll find that, uh, well, even back into biblical times, the Israelites, very concerned about the bloodlines. Why do you think the Old Testament, you know, uh, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so. I mean, they were very particular about how to keep the bloodline uh, uh, whole. And then so were the Egyptians, and they would intermarry the royalty. So were the Greeks to an extent, and so were the Romans, and so were the Nazis. So are the uh, royalty of Europe. You know, they always want to marry within the bloodline. Uh, that I don't know. Of course, I was brought up in Texas, and we don't think anything about bloodline. We just care about, hey, are you a decent person? You know? Uh, well, but uh, obviously, these people are really into the bloodline. Well, what, what I find interesting, then, is if they believe that they came from this you know, extraterrestrial race or, or a mixture of, of humans and extraterrestrials, then why did they have an obsession with getting these holy relics into their possession? To get power, to gain power. The same reason that we invaded, and one of the reasons that we invaded Iraq. And contrary to a typical military procedure where you go for an objective, you seize your objective, and then you consolidate your winnings, and then move on to your next objective, we didn't do that. We made a beeline for Baghdad, leaving the whole countryside, you know, unsuppressed, which is still causing us problems. And what had happened in Baghdad? The looting of the Iraqi National Museum. And I have mainstream news stories from 1999, 2000, 2001 that German and French archaeological teams were making amazing new discoveries in the ancient Sumerian cities of Uruk and Ur, and that they even think that they uh, found the tomb of Gilgamesh. Wow. So uh, why is that important? That's how, you know, why, why are we all uh, fired up about some old dusty pots and pans? In these stories, they said they found weapons, you know, like it was some kind of big deal. Well, you know, who cares about an old rusty spear? <laughs> hey, it was something else. It was the manipulation of energy. If you go back to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and we were, we were told, mainstream media tells us that Saddam Hussein believed himself the reincarnated Nebuchadnezzar, right? Mm-hmm. And he was rebuilding Babylon, right? So go back in, in the Old Testament, what happened in Babylon? Well, Nebuchadnezzar built a structure of gold, which has been mistranslated as a fiery furnace, but obviously it was something other than that, but it was a structure and it was made of gold. I think he was creating a uh, energy field of some sort from technology that had knowledge that had been handed down from thousands of years earlier. And in fact, when his people went in there, they died. Okay, because obviously they couldn't uh, handle the energy field. So he goes to uh, Palestine and he gets the Hebrew priests Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, brings them up and says, "Make it work." because they, too, had been down and handed through the priesthood all of this ancient knowledge. And they said, well, you're not our king, and you don't believe in our God, and we're not going to work for you. He said, well, you're going to make it work. I'm going to just throw you in there, and you're going to die. And interestingly enough, they didn't just pick them up and throw them in there. 
It said, first they donned their garments and their hats. You know, well, what's the big deal about garments and hats and stuff? What, did they put on radiation suits? Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, they went in, and Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't want to get anywhere near it. So he's calling out to his minions, you know, are they in there? They said, yes, oh, king, they're in there. He said, are all three still alive? He said, yes, and they're alive. In fact, there's a fourth in there. What? <laughs> put three in, and suddenly there's four people in there? He had opened a, uh, a wormhole or a stargate, okay? And uh, he said, well, who's the fourth person? And they said, the Son of God. And then that's the last we hear of that. We don't know who that was or what <laughs> happened to him. But to show you that Nebuchadnezzar was certainly impressed, uh, the Old Testament tells us that he put the three Hebrew priests in charge of Babylon. <laughs> Pretty good for slaves, huh? Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot going on that we don't know about, and it has to do with the basic building blocks of the universe, namely energy manipulation. And I do cover that in uh, The Rise of Fourth Reich when I talk about the Bell Project, De Glocka, which was a dome-shaped, beehive-shaped uh, object that had counter-rotating uh, magnetic uh circles with inside of it, and apparently was creating uh, some very strange energy fields, and apparently about that same time, we were dabbling around with the same thing, and that, of course, is the famous Philadelphia experiment. Well, it, it shows how forward-thinking, or maybe how inward-thinking that Hitler was to know that, you know, Military might alone might have been enough to get him into that position of power, but that to be able to keep it, he had to kind of unlock the secrets of mankind. Right, exactly. And, of course, the problem is it's like uh, everything. He thought he could take all of this knowledge and twist it to his own ends, uh, not realizing that, you know, for every action there's an equal opposite reaction and that he was actually pretty much sealing his own doom. In in the book, uh, in Sisterhood of the Rose, you know, you meant uh, Himmler has the spear, or or Hitler has the spear. You know, I'll, I'll let the reader find out about that. Right, somebody spear, had the spear. The spear of destiny comes into play. The treasure right. of Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant, all these things are discussed. How much do we think that the Nazis might have had in their possession that we might not have been able to recover from them at the end of the war? Well, that's interesting. Uh, I don't really cover this in Sisters of the Rose, but I think you'll find uh, in uh, there's a chapter in Above Top Secret, my book Above Top Secret, that deals with the possibility of uh, was there a Nazi base in Antarctica. And uh, according to some fairly reliable uh, sources, uh, they went down in the 70s, I believe it was, and found the remnants of this old Nazi base, and they recovered the real spear of destiny uh, they, they, I've seen the spirits in the uh, Hopberg Museum in Vienna and uh, and they, they say that's the real one but there's plenty of sources who say no that's not the real one and we do know that uh, Hitler and Himmler you know argued over who would get to keep possession of the spear and uh, needless to say Hitler went out so apparently Himmler had a very, very fine duplicate made. So, you know, if there's one duplicate, there could have been more. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting that if, you know... I'm, I, Tim, I'm just wondering how much power 
I mean like the spear of Longinus, okay, that, the spear of destiny. That's a real object. It's still here, you, you know. And uh, my question is, though, how, how much is that, were those really objects that uh, gave power, or, or were they just Dumbo's feather? You that's, know? that's what I'm wondering. It's, they're devoting a lot of resources to, to locating these objects with no guarantee that they were going to wield the power that they expected them to. Exactly, and probably very little understanding that if they did lose uh, some of those forces, that those forces might just as easily turn on them. Sure, I mean, just cause, just because they got it doesn't mean that they're right. <laughs> That's right. Well, of also, course, though... Of course, never underestimate the foolhardiness of uh, men, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, in Alamogordo, New Mexico in 1945, when they were about to set off the very first atomic bomb, more than half the scientists working on the Manhattan Project sincerely believed that they would start a chain reaction which would ignite the atmosphere and incinerate the Earth. And they set it off anyway. You know? <laughs> glad, glad, that, glad we were wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, even though we know that the Nazis were masters of propaganda, so even if they didn't get actual you know metaphysical power from these objects the fact that you know uh, hitler could get up behind the uh, podium and hold them up to everybody and show that they right. had them oh it was a huge psychological advantage i mean and this goes all the way back through history you know uh, during the crusades uh, during the holy wars hundred years wars uh, every side you know had a flag banner or a totem or or a cross or something that they could hold up and say, you know, God's on our side, you're protected, and of course the guys would just charge into the carnage thinking they're going to be okay. And they did believe in a lot of the symbology uh, of, you know, ancient Germanic peoples and, and utilizing a lot of that symbology to their own to their own ends. I mean, we look at the swastika now as a, as an evil symbol, as something that's, you know, negative, but to them it was not that at all. No, in fact, I, I, I yes, up until the time of Hitler, it was actually thought to be a good luck charm. Uh, in fact, I have a picture I took in Tibet of a woman walking down the road with this beautiful embroidered shawl over her shoulder and with this huge yellow swastika on the back of it, you know? Of course, if I tried to walk through New York <laughs> in that shawl, I'd be beat up before I went two blocks. But isn't that interesting? And, and it actually represented uh, the sun, Ra, the sun god. But now what Hitler did, and that's why if you go back and see some of the old wartime propaganda and some of the old wartime movies, they called it the Twisted Cross or the Crooked Cross because he took an ancient symbol for uh, for the sun, for Ra, for God, and uh, Yahweh, whatever, and twisted, turned it, okay? Turned it at about a 30-degree uh, uh, angle. So it's almost like taking a, a, a good signal a symbol and twisting it to the evil. Just the amount of knowledge that Hitler must have had and, and those who worked under him must have had to be able to manipulate these things to their own ends. Uh, it's fast. I mean, I never want to give credit, obviously, to, to the Nazis and what they did, uh, but the fact that they were able to amass such power so quickly, I mean, you have to kind of think that maybe they weren't using alchemy and, and the occult and things like that to their own They advantage. had to have something going for yeah. them, right? And, I mean, they were able to come up with just astounding technology by the end of the war. You know, they had the Kugel Blitz, 
they had the uh, first operational jet, the ME-262. They had uh, tanks that were, that were so far advanced that some of the... Uh, some of the world's nations were still using them as mainline battle tanks all the way up to the 70s. Uh, and yeah, it was just amazing. Oh, where did they get that information? That's the question. Now, I'm sure you're familiar. In fact, I know you are because I was on your program talking about the Army's remote viewing program. Mm-hmm. That was a psychic program, right? Yep. Now, here's here's a theory. Okay, and I'll, uh, let me preface that because I, I can't prove this, but I have lots of good information to say this is what's going on. For years, the idea was that the Nazis had captured a UFO and that they back-engineered some of the technology, and that's how they were able to come up with the vampire, which was their night vision, (laughs) you know, uh, device, and a lot of this stuff. And yet, every time I tried to track those stories, they never seemed to pan out. There was never any real evidence to show that they ever actually recovered a UFO. So what I'm of the opinion of now is you go all the way back to the time of World War One and into the 20s, and one of the big fads of the time was what they call spiritualism. Okay, you'd have seances, and you'd try to contact other worlds. And uh, after the fall of communism, one of the Army remote viewers, one of our psychic spies, uh, was meeting with some of his Russian counterparts, and they told him that after the war, that the Nazis had a whole program of psychic warfare, uh, psychic uh, experimentation, and that the Allies, particularly Americans, just poo-pooed that, said, well, there's nothing to that. We don't believe in that. So they just left them all alone. So the Russians took them. And that's why they were busy developing psychic ability as, uh, as a wartime instrument and finally, about the 1970s, uh, with the book uh, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain, uh, some of our top brass began to realize, you know, I don't know if I believe in this or not, but by golly, the, the commies are doing it, so we got to do it too. And that's when they began our psychic uh, experimentations, which resulted in an actual operational unit within the U.S. Army uh, that was using what they call remote viewing. Of course, it was nothing more than just utilizing psychic ability. Uh, that had been carefully studied and nurtured in the laboratory, particularly at Stanford Research Institute. So this uh, fellow who was with our remote viewer said that the Russians told him that they got it all from the Germans and that the Germans had a psychic program. Are you ready for this? The name of it was MAJIK, M-A-J-I-K, which is the German and now you know all about UFOs, you know all about the Majestic 12, which originally was Magic 12, M-A-J-I-C, which is the anglicized version of M-A-J-I-K. So I can't help but think that maybe we did get hold of a few of those Nazi psychics, and maybe that we were kind of looking at that long before remote viewing came along. But my real point is, is that I think the Nazis made contact with non-human intelligences, not by capturing a UFO, but by using this, these, this psychic ability, which has now been confirmed and used by our own CIA and our own military. I mean, How's that for a story? Oh, it's astonishing, but it's, it's absolutely plausible because, you know, that would be a nat- whereas with us, you know, in our, our, 
our society, you know, we might say, well, what, what would the U.S. government want to contact space aliens for? We might take that with a grain of salt. But if they really did believe that they emanated from these beings, it would make perfect sense that they would be trying to get in contact with them and maybe to say, hey, we're fighting the good fight for you guys back here. Come on back and visit us. Exactly. And picture this. Um, you know, the uh, Hitler didn't just seize power. He was actually voted in. And then he was voted, supported by the German people, almost all the way through the war, by the bulk of them, okay? And uh, why did they go for that? Uh, because he promised them uh, a new world order, and those were his words, the same words we've heard from former President George Herbert Walker Bush and others now talking about a new world order, which is kind of spooky. But he promised them a better future, jobs for everybody, he was going to make National Socialism really work and said that was the wave of the future. And they bought into it. So, Tim, what if they did make contact with non-human intelligences and convince them that they were the new, the new order, that they were, you know, the forward-looking, scientific-based people, and that they were going to bring the world under one uh, cohesive government and that our planet would advance and we'd be ready to make contact with extraterrestrial civilizations. And they bought into it, too, and said, okay, here's some technology. And then as the war went along and they saw the carnage that was going on, and they were probably able to learn about the death camps long before we ever heard about them, and they went, oh, wait a minute, what have we done here? We've backed the wrong horse. Absolutely. And so they withdrew their support, and we all know what happened. The Allies crushed them. I don't know. <laughs> I'm may... not telling you that happened. I'm just saying, listen, think about that. Well, it, it may sound like such an out-there theory, but when you look at it, it's it's not. I mean, it fits the history. It makes sense. Yeah, it does. And and it, everything that we know, even the oddities and uh, the anomalies of the war, all kind of tend to make sense in, in that kind of context. You know, strip away the uh, the concentration camps and the Gestapo and the, you know, just the nastiness of the of the Nazi regime and the basic idea of you know socialism. That's exactly what we would want to have happen <laughs> yeah, if we exactly. make contact. That's the that's the ideal world. Exactly. That's, that's why the new the current new world order is pushing for one world socialism. Except they don't want truly one world government and one world social program because then they cannot have the tensions uh, and conflicts necessary to maintain their power and control. So what are they trying to do? Hey, read the work of Eric Arthur Blair. Okay, He wrote a book in 1948 under the pen name George Orwell, and he called it 1984. He transposed the last two letters. And Eric Arthur Blair was a Fabian socialist in England with very good connections into the royalty and into the aristocracy. And I think he knew what the game plan was, and he laid it out in 1984. You divide the world into three major factions. In his book, it was Oceana, East Asiana, and Asiana. And then in, in the real world today, it's the European Union, the soon-to-be North American Union, and the even further along Asian Union. They're all socialist, and then you play one faction constantly against another for maximum control, profit, and power. All right, I'm going to cut you off there, Jim. We're coming up on the news, but we can definitely pick this up uh, right after the news break and right after the week in weird. We'll be back with more here on Spooky South Coast. 
that music means? Ooh, we're stuck in an elevator? No! <laughs> Wrong! Spooky South Coast is back. I can smell your fears. I'm not afraid. You will be. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz, and uh, did you take my potato chip? <laughs> that's that's Mon- between you and your god. That's her. <laughs> it's between you and your god. Moniz, we're going to have to show this to you before we leave the studio tonight. Okay. It's one of the greatest moments in the history of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> it's, it, it just was amazing. Um, but anyway, we digress. Uh, well... Uh, we did mention uh, earlier uh, that Moniz was working at Rock for Christmas last weekend. And, uh, you know, Matt Coss and I, we got to enjoy ourselves with Jeff Belanger yeah. just being, you know, fans and hanging out in the crowd, having a few beers and having a good time. Matt Moniz had to work. He had to sing for his supper. Yeah. But uh, there are some more shows coming up for Rock for Christmas if you want to get involved still. Uh, there's still, uh, of course, the big finale, too, coming up in Mohegan Sun this week. So just go to rock4xmas.com. That's rock the number four xmas.com. And then next week, uh, we're going to hopefully have in the studio with us, uh, Chet Rosanowski, who runs Dreams Come True, which is an organization, a local organization here on the South Coast. For, uh, you know, for, for doing the amazing work they do, they don't get a lot of play in the media, and it's not something that's, uh, overly hyped. And a lot of that is because Chet does a lot of the work out of his own pocket. Uh, and what they do is they bring motivational speakers, people who have met great challenges in their life and overcome them, and they bring them into the local classrooms, and they give the presentation to the schools. And it's it's amazing because I talk with Chet about it uh, all the time, and he says, you know, he brings in these great speakers like Heather Whitestone, the, the deaf Miss America, Cisco uh, Jeter, who is a, uh, a paraplegic who competed in the Olympic Games in a wheelchair, uh, Bill Demby, who is most famous for playing in that DuPont commercial, playing basketball in the artificial legs. Uh, nobody's children, the, the Croatian kids who were brought to America. I mean, there's so many good positive stories coming out of this organization. And when it comes time to bring it around to the schools, so many of the schools say, well, we can't afford you the time because we're, you know, with MCAS and the minimum amount of hours we have to have, we can't really afford the time. So even then he's hitting a brick wall of being able to even get the message out. And then on top of that, when it comes to funding it, I mean, he's, he's handling most of it himself. So he's come up with a fundraiser that's a great idea, uh, and it's I'll let him discuss it with us next week, but it's a cookbook, essentially, of all the family recipes of everyone around the South Coast. He wants you to submit, you know, your grandmother's recipes, your mother's recipes, things that you'll remember of who the fabric of who you are, 
to, to bring them all together into one cookbook that represents all of what the South Coast is about. And then hopefully, you know, that will help generate some funds to bring these guest speakers into the schools. So we're going to talk with Chet next Saturday night. I believe he's going to come here in the studio with us for a little bit. Uh, so you'll be able to hear more about the message and hear more about how you can help make it happen. But uh, I can tell you right now, he basically just wants to uh, uh, at least get those recipes uh, rolling in. And Matt, I see you're on the website right now. Why don't you give out the web address to everybody for the Dreams Come True program? Uh, sure. It's uh, dreamscometrueprogram.com. There you go. Can't go, can't get any easier than that. Yeah. (laughs) Dreamscometrueprogram.com if you want to find out more. And, uh, we'll have Chet in here. And it's, Matt and I know him very well. He's he's a friend of ours. Uh, Anybody in the, uh, in the Tri-Town area or in Wareham that's ever had a plumbing problem, you've had (laughs) Chet come to your house. Yep. (laughs) And he's, in addition to being a great guy who runs a great organization, he's an A-plus plumber too. So, uh, don't be afraid to call him for that reason either. All right. Well, uh, why don't we, since it's about that time, get a little weird? More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> The Week in Weird. All right, our first story. It's a little lengthy, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read it because it's it's great. It was it uh, comes from physorg.com and it was provided by North Carolina State North Carolina State University. Santa skeptics have long considered Saint Nick's ability to deliver toys to the world's good girls and boys in the course of one night a scientific impossibility. But new research shows that Santa is able to make his appointed rounds through the pioneering use of cutting-edge science and technology. Santa is using technologies that we are not yet able to recreate in our own labs, explains North Carolina State University's Dr. Larry Silverberg, a professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering who just completed a six-month visiting scholar program at Santa's workshop slash North Pole Labs, better known as SWNPL. As the first scholar to participate in the SWNPL program, I learned that we have a long way to go to catch up with Santa in fields ranging from aerodynamics and thermodynamics to material science. For example, Silverberg says that Santa's sleigh is far more advanced than any modern form of air transportation. The truss of the sleigh, including the runners, are made of a honeycomb titanium alloy that is very lightweight and 10 to 20 times stronger than anything we can make today, Silverberg says. The truss can also morph, Silverberg adds, altering its shape slightly to improve its aerodynamics and allowing it to cut through the air more efficiently. The runners on the sleigh, for example, have some flexure. This allows them to tuck in to be more aerodynamic during flight and then spread out to provide stability for landing on various surfaces, such as steeply pitched roofs. The sleigh is equipped with state-of-the-art electronics, too, including laser sensors that can detect upcoming thermals and wind conditions to find the optimal path. This makes the flight smoother and more energy efficient, Silverberg says. Efficiency is key because a lot of the ongoing research at Santa's workshop, North Pole Labs, focuses on whether magic is a renewable resource. The focus on efficiency in a smooth ride has also led to the development of a nanostructured skin for the sleigh that is porous and contains its own low-pressure system, which holds the air flowing around the airborne sled onto the body, reducing drag by as much as 90%. A key finding from Silverberg's visit to the North Pole is that Santa uses a reversible thermodynamic processor, a sort of nano toy maker known as the Magic Sack, that creates toys for good girls and boys on site, significantly cutting down on the overall weight of the sleigh. 
The Magic Sack uses carbon-based soot from chimneys together with other local materials to make the toys. The Magic Sack works by applying high-precision electromagnetic fields to reverse thermodynamic processes previously thought to be irreversible. The sleigh is driven by Santa's well-known team of reindeer, which is equipped with side-mounted jetpacks. The reindeer and jetpacks, which are powered by cold fusion, quote, are arrayed in such a way as to create a stable reindeer sleigh system, Silverberg says. The sleigh's reins are used to not only direct the heads of the reindeer, but to direct the orientation of the jetpacks for precision flight. Silverberg explains that the sleigh is also equipped to make use of a so-called, quote, relativity clouds to help ensure Santa and his reindeer can travel approximately 200 million square miles, making stops in some 80 million homes all in one night. Based on his advanced knowledge of the theory of relativity, Santa recognizes that time can be stretched like a rubber band, space can be squeezed like an orange, and light can be bent, Silverberg says. Relativity clouds are controllable domains, or rips in time, that allow him months to deliver presents while only a few minutes pass on Earth. The presents are truly delivered in the wink of an eye. Silverberg says the experience was, quote, an eye-opener. I appreciate the opportunity Santa has given me to visit his sleigh port and work alongside the elves at Santa's workshop, North Pole Labs. It was a unique learning experience and a tremendous honor. He also notes that the principles of cold fusion are still a closely guarded secret. So there you go. There's how you, you always wondered how Santa gets it done in one night. And uh, Dr. Larry Silverberg of North Carolina State University provided us with the reason how. All right, Matt Costa, what do you have for us? All right, from uh, Tokyo. And a Japanese brewers come up with a beer that's truly out of this world. One made of barley grown from the line of seeds that once orbited the Earth aboard the International Space Station. Sapporo Breweries Limited said Monday or Monday's orders flooded in for the special edition of 256 packs of its new space barley. The company says the amber brew was made from the fourth generation of barley seeds that had spent five months in the Russian laboratory on the International Space Station. We had received orders from 2,000 people by Sunday, and we believe shows people's interest is high, considering the rather high price for the six-pack bottles. The company spokesman said some Japanese name I can't say. <laughs> some would call... Arokusaki. <laughs> that was the shredder. Arokusaki. <laughs> Hamato Yoshi. Uh, some would call the price astronomical, pun intended. Uh, a six-pack retails for about 10,000 yen, or $110, and that breaks down to about $20 per bottle. Sapporo said it would keep. they will keep taking orders for the beer until Christmas Eve, December 24th, then select lucky customers through a computer lottery, which, with uh, proceeds being donated to educational and research projects. Mm, mm. Space beer. <laughs> well, thought, that's good, though. I always, I always thought space beer was just when you took beer and mixed it with tang. <laughs> <laughs> or you drank it upside down. You know, the- <laughs> That's good, though, that the money that's used from selling that beer is going to go to, to research and education. It's, uh, it's to kind of like more beer. It's kind of like how we say all the all the beer that my dad drank could have gone to my college education. <laughs> I'm just kidding. My dad doesn't drink. Well, if yeah, he'd, okay. if he put it this way, if he was going to drink beer, probably two. That'd probably be all he needs. All right, Matt Moniz, what do you have for us? I get something submitted by Snaz from the forum on SpookySouthCoast.com, and it comes from the Daily Mail in the U.K. as well. The mystery began when a blue light seemed to soar up from behind a mountain in the north, 
north of the country, stopped in midair, and then began to move in circles. Within seconds, a giant spiral had covered the entire sky. Then a green-blue beam of light shot from out of its center, lasting for 10 to 12 minutes before disappearing completely. Onlookers describing it as a big fireball that went around with a great light around it and a shooting star that spun around and around. Okay. Yesterday, a Norwegian defense spokesman said the display was most likely from a failed Russian test launch. The bullet of a missile was test-fired from Dmitry Donovsky submarine in the White Sea earlier Wednesday, but failed at the third stage, according to newspapers in Moscow. This emerged despite earlier reports denying the missile launch yesterday. Even earlier today, there was no formal confirmation from the Russian Defense Ministry. The light appears to be unconnected with the Aurora Borealis or Northern Lights and the natural natural magnetic phenomena that can often be viewed in that part of the world. Researchers agreed, saying the missile had likely veered out of control, exploded, and the spiral light was a resulted from uh, reflecting light on the leaking fuel. Russia denied it and has been conducting missile denied it had been conducting tests in the area. The Bulova, despite being crucial to Russia's plans to revamp its weaponry, is becoming an embarrassment after nine failed launches in 13 tests, prompting calls for it to be scrapped. In theory, it has a range of 5,000 miles and can carry up to 10 nuclear weapons bound for separate targets. Well, I'm sure you saw these these the lights over Norway and yeah. you've seen the videos. And What did you think when you first saw it? Oh, I first saw it, was, I thought it was pretty interesting. One of the first things I thought was like, yeah, okay, we got somebody opening some sort of crazy stargate here or something. It, it, that's what it looked like. I mean, it looked like some sort of portal opening up. Uh, you know, first thing was uh, Einstein, Rosenfield, Podolsky Bridge, and, you know, it's theory of bending space and opening, you know, things like that. But noticing the contrail and uh, the way it opened and, and then the way... It just uh, disappeared and dissipated like that. And, yeah, I also made a few phone calls, and I got confirmation from people I know that are in aerospace. They said, yeah, this definitely was a failed test launch. Well, either way, it looked really cool. It looks pretty. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, if if ever uh, something was going to come to our planet, that might be the easiest way, uh, you know, to, to pop through one of those rather than flying here in a giant ship. But... I mean, it definitely caught my eye when I saw it. That's for sure. Looks like the beginning of Heroes right there. Only, <laughs> in, only when you rewind it. All right, that is the weekend. And Snaz, by the way, send us your uh, your contact info because we'll send you a spooky South Coast bumper sticker. We still got some, right? We do. All right, we'll send you a bumper sticker because, you know, if you go to the SpookySouthCoast.com website, click on the forum tab, go to the Weekend Weird thread, and drop a story in there and we use it on the show, you will get a spooky South Coast bumper sticker while supplies last. So, Snaz, you've got yours. Just send us your contact info and it'll be on its way. And speaking of on its way, we are on our way to returning to our discussion with Jim Mars in just a minute, coming up here on Spooky South Coast.
lock the doors and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz. Just a few programming notes coming up in January. We've got a couple of big shows coming up. Uh, and I'm really excited to explore some new topics in 2010. There's going to be a lot of things that we're going to get to discuss on this program that, you know, we haven't really touched upon enough over the years. And, and one of those things is, 2012. A lot of people have been asking me about it. I'm not, I'm not talking about people that are fans of the show. I'm not talking about people who are listeners. I'm not talking about uh, people interested in the paranormal. I'm talking about general people. They say, hey, you're into that paranormal stuff, that supernatural stuff. What do you know about 2012? They're starting to get worried about it, uh, maybe because they realize it's not that far away. But don't worry. It's December of 2012, so you've got plenty of time. But uh, we're going to have on Alexandra Bruce, who has the new book and DVD out, 2012 Science or Superstition. Well, we're going to get to the bottom of that. We're going to find out which exactly it is coming up with her. That's on January 9th. And then toward the end of the month, we're going to have Joe Nesgoda. Now, if you're a fan of Coast to Coast AM, which many of you are and we are, then you heard Joe Nesgoda on Coast to Coast last week with our one of our favorite guests of all time, our Gary Patterson, uh, the guru of... Supernatural rock and roll stories, curses and legends. Well, uh, Joe Nesgoda wrote a book called The Lennon Prophecy about John Lennon supposedly entering into a Faustian pact with the devil and basically selling his soul to become famous and as a result of that, predicting his own death. And there's a lot of clues, just as there was with R. Carrie Patterson and the, the book uh, The Walrus is Paul, all the clues about whether or not Paul McCartney is dead and he's been replaced by the one and only Billy Shears, well, the Lennon Prophecy gives you a lot of clues as well. So if you go to Joe and just go to site, the Lennon Prophecy website, he's got a lot of the clues up there on his site, and he posts new ones up there on the blog, and there's constantly new clues. Obviously, hindsight being twenty twenty, you can apply what happened to a lot of these things, but it, it doesn't matter. It's still a fascinating discussion to have, and I'm a huge Beatles fan. I know Matt Costa, not a huge fan, but he appreciates them. He understands what they meant to the world. Matt Moniz, I'm not sure your take on the Beatles, but... Well, they're, they're lovely. <laughs> well, well uh, I, for a minute there, I thought he was going to quote, uh, quote the Beatles from uh, Walk Hard. But uh, we will talk to Jonas Goda coming up uh, probably in January about that. So, But right now, let's get right back into the discussion with Jim Mars, investigative journalist and author of numerous nonfiction books on things such as the 9-11 terror conspiracy, Alien Agenda and Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy, and now his new book, his first novel, The Sisterhood of the Rose. We've been discussing it and talking about you know, the Nazis' uh, preoccupation with all things occult, and it's almost like, Jim, that now we kind of need uh, the Americans to get a hold of some of that stuff. <laughs> well, as we were talking about before the break, I think they did. Uh, they now call it remote viewing or uh, psychological warfare. Well, we need like the Holy Grail, just so we can cash it in and pay pay back uh, China. <laughs> well, that's the thing that actually continued the Third Reich into the Fourth Reich. Uh, not only did they apparently get Solomon's treasure, but think about it—they had the whole loot of Europe. 
And all that stuff got shipped out. It went to Swiss bank accounts. It went to foreign uh, shores, South America, Central America, uh, even and then on into the United States. And what they did with all that money was buy up companies and then corporations, and then they began to buy up the corporations. That's why, uh, like today, everything we see in here uh, has devolved down to five multinational corporations. And, in fact, this might send a little shiver up your spine. The uh, largest publisher in the English language is Bertelsmann of Germany, a privately owned uh, corporation, which now controls every major publisher in the United States, with the exception of my publisher, HarperCollins, and Disinformation Company, and William Morrow. Uh, they, they They own the book clubs, they own everything, and during World War II, they were the largest publishers of Nazi propaganda, uh, for the Wehrmacht. So, that, uh, is a, that is kind of a, a creepy thought, but then again, for my day job, I work for Rupert Murdoch. So. Well, I, I do too. <laughs> I do too. I've had several books through Harper Collins. Well, that's what I say. He, uh, I, he may play ball with them, but he's not one of them. Sure. And, uh, well, I mean, and plus I'm under the Dow Jones umbrella with the newspaper I work for, so, uh, I'm kind of the bastard child of News Corp. You know, he just wanted the Wall Street Journal, and he just happened to get the rest of our papers with it. So. <laughs> you were tag-alongs, added bonus. Yeah. That's all right, though. We like it. Any, anything that uh, connects me closer to Family Guy and The Simpsons, I guess, makes me cool in other people's eyes. So That's right. All right, we actually have a caller on the line, so let's take that call. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast with Jim Mars. How are you doing? Hey, hi, guys. Hi. Howdy. Oh, your reading skills, Tim, were great tonight, much and much improved from the knees. And I love Matt. You know, some name I can't pronounce. <laughs> that was so that was funny. But your guest is so interesting. Okay, I think I love history, science, magic. I read books about that and everything. And he's right. He mentioned world blocks, trading in world blocks. That's just what happened. That's like North American block, European block, Asian block, South Pacific. They've been working but at that for a long time. They've been working at that since, like, Reagan was in office. That was a done deal. It's not like the New World Order, like Daddy well, Bush called it. It's the New World Ownership. That's what it is. I call it the New World Odor. I call it the New World Ownership. That's what I call it. Always right. follow the money. Right. And follow like, the money. That's the old journalistic creed, and that'll always... That'll, that, that's what you'll find. I'm, I like the way you mentioned the Philadelphia Experiment. I called uh, a couple of weeks ago and mentioned the Hadron Collider, how they said it was being sabotaged from mm-hmm. the future. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's all kinds of things. Well, yeah, it, it, people don't talk about. I don't yeah. know about you, but, uh, uh, that collider, and, and, you know, even as we speak, somewhere deep ground in some secret facility, you know, they're tampering with the basic building blocks of the universe. Absolutely. Uh, you know, That's wait a minute, guys. You know, you know it, you, it's on. like these are important subjects, but people don't know about them or they're too busy living hand to mouth to do anything about them. They they don't even question three buildings falling in their own footstep. Yeah. Okay? Without any satisfactory accountability or investigation, no forensic things. Not two buildings that were hit by planes, 110, 100, 100-story, 100 110- but also, like the third world, the 47, 47 stories there. Are. Building 7? Yeah. Building world, seven. yeah, that's precisely right. Building 7. It's like what not even worth mentioning, not even in the report. I know. How's that they for an piece, investigation? No. I mean, it's like the emperor has no clothes. And like um, you said, 
Yeah, what's your book? I read a lot. <laughs> He's got one? many books. <laughs> yeah, what subject one? matter? Pick a subject matter. I want to know what you think your best book is. That's the most, you know, a historical novel kind. Like I, listen, right now I'm reading, uh, what am I reading? <laughs> Patriotic Treason by John Brown. I mean, I've just finished the uh, Grand Inquisitor's Handbook, which isn't contrary to probably what the guys want to think. It isn't like just instruments of torture. But you know, if you want to start off uh, on my path to truth, I would recommend actually that you go back to my 2000 book, Rule by Secrecy. Because you know something? I heard you say I was going to ask you that one. And what's your latest book, Rule by Secrecy? No, that one's in 2000, but that will give you an overview of the secret societies, the plans for the New World Order that I traced all the way back to the ancient Sumerian civilization. I, uh, I read a lot of history, and I realize how far back and how many inexplicable things they, that are that happen that might not be. And when you, uh, you hear the same things repeated throughout the history of many nations and many exactly. cultures, even like, you ever read anything like skinny legs and all? It goes back like the oldest religions are like 5,000 years old. This is a well-researched and, and humorous book. Well, that's uh, uh, my latest one is actually, I call it faction. It's fact-based fiction. Uh, I think you would enjoy that. It's the Sisterhood of the Rose. The Sisterhood of the Rose and and um, the secret, Rule the by secret government. <laughs> Rule by secrecy. <laughs> just, you know what? If you just go to the bookstore or to the library and just mention Jim Mars, they'll be able to help you find them. Yeah. Jim who? Jim Mars. M-A-R-R-S. Jim Mars? Mars. Like the planet, like the planet, only with an extra R. Jim Mars. Oh, Jim Mars. Yes. Oh, okay, not Phobos, right? And not Demos, but Mars. Okay, That's right. Mars. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you very thanks, much, gentlemen, and thanks for a great show. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you a book for Christmas. <laughs> All right. I, no, my kids will give me anything I want. I don't know when things reverse, but well, I love the, it. In that case, I suggest the entire Jim Mars library. <laughs> Well, that's mighty whitey. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, have a good night. <laughs> bye bye. Good night, guys. Well, I've got a number of them on my shelf. There's, they're worth having. And you know, you mentioned uh, above top secret, and that book is like a, a just a easy companion to be able to look up any of this stuff. Uh, you know, that's as true. you're learning about it. Yeah, for people, uh, anybody that's listening, if you've got some friends who are beginning to wake up a little bit and go, "Hey, wait a minute, what's going on with everything?" Above Top Secret um, is a good primer. Uh, it covers a whole wide variety of topics. Uh, do we go to the moon? Um, Kennedy assassination, 9-11. Uh, you know, are there FEMA, you know, detention camps? Uh, did the Nazis have a base at the South Pole? And you mentioned earlier, Tim, a lot of your listeners are concerned about 2012. It's got a whole chapter on 2012. Uh, this is the one that kind of touches, it's, it's all the information that they don't want you to know. So it's a great starting place. Absolutely. And, you know, she met, Christine mentioned, uh, in the call, she kind of made quick reference to 9-11, but that's something that I wanted to talk to you about because we didn't touch on it on your last visit here. And the new Jesse Ventura show, Conspiracy Theory, did a whole episode on it this week. Right. And my wife. What I understand, I haven't seen the entire thing, but hey, just, the sure fact that he was interviewing William Rodriguez tells me he's doing a good job. 
Sure. And uh, my wife is not, not a believer in many conspiracy theories. She thinks that, you know, I see conspiracies everywhere and that I'm, you know, more prone to believe it. But when, when something major like that happens, I always think more than just one person had to know about it. Exactly. So, but she was watching the episode with me and she was starting to really say, you know, it makes sense what they're saying. I can't understand what their reasoning and their justification is, but it definitely seems like it was in some fashion an inside job well let me get you want to hear the reasoning and the justification absolutely okay first off this sounds terrible but uh it's just like the caller said follow the money uh the twin towers in new york uh have always uh been a sore point to new yorkers because they was built on rockefeller land in fact early on they dubbed them the david and the nelson uh the two towers (laughs) They were more than 30 years old, owned by the Port Authority of New York, and weren't even filled. Uh, you know, there were many floors where there were no tenants, uh, so it was probably losing money. But the main problem was that they were deteriorating. After 30 years, materials were, you know, falling down, disintegrating. It's causing a problem. So they actually contemplated um, refurbishing them. But can you imagine what it would cost to put up 110 stories of scaffolding? and try to rework those buildings, it was just not cost-effective. And so uh, then they determined that they maybe they would just tear them down. But then the city of New York would not give them a permit because it was learned that they were half-filled with asbestos. So they couldn't tear them down. So I ask you, what does the mafia do with a building they can't lend, and they're losing money, and they can't tear it down, and they can't renovate it? They torch it for the insurance. Yep. All right, so two months before 9-11, Wakefield Properties and Silverstein Properties took a 99-year lease on the World Trade Center for $3.2 billion. Of course, they didn't have to put up the whole $3.2 billion. They put up either as rent, advance lease payments, or as a down payment, about $125 million. Now, the first thing Larry Silverstein does is... uh, hire a company called Securicom uh, to provide security for the World Trade Centers. The uh, CEO of Securitycom was Work Walker III, as in George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, a close family tied to the Bushes, and sitting on the board of directors was Marvin Bush, George W. Bush's younger brother. So now the Bushes have control over the security of the World Trade Center. The next thing Silverstein does is take out insurance policies, not one but several, with uh, insurance corporations insisting and being granted a clause that said they would pay out in the event of a terrorist strike. Well, of course, the North Tower had already been bombed back in 1993. Mm -hmm. And I ask you, Tim, how far do you think you're going to get getting your insurance company to insure you against a terrorist attack at your home? It's going to be damn difficult, if not impossible. But they gave it to him. Now, this was not state farm insurance. This was Swiss Re, uh, another Swiss company, Alliance, the giant German Nazi insurance company that insured the concentration camps during World War II against damage by their inmates. Um, and so that shows you at the level this was taking place. So sure enough, two months after all this took place, bam, they're hit in the terrorist attack. Uh, the two buildings go down, and Silverstein goes to court and argues that, well, there were two planes and two buildings, so this is double indemnity, right? And he was going for, I think, like $12 billion, 
And uh, after they got through all the lawyers hassling and negotiating, they finally settled and they paid uh, Silverstein uh, $6.5 billion, wow. okay, for $125 million investment in less than a year. <laughs> and uh, the Port Authority gave the original down payment, $125 million, gave that back to Silverstein. Uh, I don't know. I guess they felt bad that he had lost his lease property. But now here's the clincher. Silverstein doesn't get to keep all the money. He has to share it with the mortgage holders. The largest uh, mortgage holder in the World Trade Center was Blackstone Group, uh, who is headed by Peter G. Peterson, who I'm sure by some strange coincidence is the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. So you see Swiss Bank's Council on Foreign Relations, the Rockefellers, you see at the level at what this happened. And, of course, in addition to taking care of this, uh, building problem and making billions of dollars. It also gave the Bush administration the justification for invading Afghanistan and then later Iraq, where we're still fighting uh, to no discernible <laughs> victory, and to start curtailing the freedoms of us in America. Well, and you mentioned William Rodriguez, who uh, is the person who says that he heard an explosion from one of the sub-basements uh, about right. seven seconds before the first plane hit. Right, and he is not the only other one. I, uh, I quote a Michael Picardo uh, in my book, The Terror Conspiracy, and there were a lot, there's lots of evidence there were explosions before even seconds before the planes hit. So, yeah, and now... They have. Found, I'll give you just two recent facts about 9/11. On the World Trade Center, a scientific paper in Europe, uh, peer-reviewed, uh, about eight scientists. They said that unequivocally that they found in several different samples of the World Trade Center dust traces of thermite, a military-controlled demolition explosive. Okay. Now, where's the news on that? If I was a news editor, I'd go, holy moly, that's a news story. But no, our control mass media will not talk about it. Now, the next thing is, is that Flight 77 that we're told was piloted by one of the terrorists, Hani Honjor, and that he made a just death-defying 180-degree spiraling dive, leveled out at treetop level, hit the pedal to the metal, going 550 miles an hour, at treetop level, which, number one, is impossible because a big, wide-bodied jet like that pushes an air cushion in front of it, and it would not allow you to get uh, that low to the ground. It's just impossible. But then smashed into the Pentagon, okay? Recently, they under a Freedom of Information Act suit, they got the da flight data recording for Flight 77, and it showed that the cockpit door had never been open during the flight. So... Wait a Which, minute. How did they get to the controls? That's interesting because in the Jesse Ventura show, I don't know if you uh, ever spoke to a gentleman by the name of, I believe his last name was Malone, but it was spelled like M-E-L-L-O-N. Um, and he was actually one of the workers who was trying to recover the black boxes from the two planes that hit the World Trade Center. And he said not only did he see one of them and hear from people that they found at least two more, right. but he said that, uh, the people told him, the people that had heard the recordings told him that uh, the planes that left from Logan Airport in Boston, the terrorists were already in the cockpit before the plane took off, Whoa. and they were speaking English. Whoa. 
So if well, that's now, true, you know, then... now see that could explain why during the flight, the flight data recorder never did show that the uh, flight deck door was open. They yeah, were if, already in there. If seventy-seven was the same way, that's exactly what it could be—that they were. Yeah. And and the fact that not only did they know that they were in there and they allowed them to take off, but apparently, and this is something I learned from the from the Ventura show, apparently they had just passed a, a new procedure in May of '01 that only Cheney, Rumsfeld, or Bush could authorize the the shoot that's, down of a civilian plane. That's true, that's and that true. they were informed up, of it. Up, yeah, up until the spring of 2001, the normal procedure and protocol for a uh, interception was that the local commanders could make the judgment on their own, which only makes sense because they're the ones there, they're the ones getting the initial information, and they know, you know, what needs to be done. But they changed that and said Rumsfeld, as Secretary of Defense, had to give his personal okay uh, before they could uh, take any action. And, of course, if you'll remember all of the hand-wringing after 9-11, one of the big points was is that nobody quite figured out where Rumsfeld was. You know, he kind of made himself scarce. So you're going to tell me then, well, not you, but what, what they're informing us then is that if these hijackers were in the cockpit and they knew that when they allowed them to take off, that they didn't have enough time between Boston and New York to get word to Rumsfeld and have Rumsfeld issue the order to shoot them down. It, the, the, hey, the, what, what about our interceptors? Uh, in 1999, uh, the golfer Payne Stewart his uh, Learjet, uh, they had an oxygen malfunction. They all passed out, and it went off the flight plan. Within minutes, within like 10 to 15 minutes, there were uh, fighter escorts all over it. <clears throat> what happened on 9-11? It was because of war game exercises. If you'll remember, even the 9-11 Commission quoted one of the uh, uh, FAA officials as saying when he contacted the North American Air Defense Command, the first thing they said was, well, hey, is, is this the real world or is this an ex- part of the exercise? How did they know to piggyback these hijackings, if it was indeed hijacking, onto an, an existing war game plan that was one of the most secret war game exercises that we've ever had? I talked to a Sergeant Laura Chavez, who was with the Central Command. He'd been in the Army for, I don't know, pushing 30 years, I think, and he said he'd never seen such a secretive uh, exercise is the one that they were pulling off on the morning of 9-11. He said they were all in there, and one of the scenarios that they were running was a hijacked commercial plane being flown into the World Trade Center. And he said all of a sudden there was this big buzz. They looked up on the screen. Somebody kicked on CNN. There's the North Tower burning, and they were all, their jaws were dropping. They said, how is this possible that the very thing that we're running as an exercise has actually happened? I mean, what are the odds? Uh, this is, this was a very, very carefully thought out internal plan. And, and I'll, well, we're running short on time here, but uh, I will say this. This is something that I discussed while I was watching the show with my wife, and I said, you know, everybody was so wrapped up in the emotion of what happened and with the, you know, the valiant effort of the cleanup crews, it didn't really dawn on a lot of people, but it, I mean, not to, I'm not saying I'm, you know, a cold-hearted person that, uh, immediately no, but when things like this happen, you have to keep your wits and you have to start looking and finding out what's but, really going and on. And if that's the case, then we must have been asking ourselves, I know I was, why are they cleaning this up so quickly? Why are they, yes. why are they disturbing a crime scene? That's, that's destruction of evidence. And they haul it away. In fact, the, the first people to investigate was a team of uh, mechanical engineers 
that was put together by FEMA and uh, some investigation. They would not allow them in certain buildings. They would not allow them to test some of the steel. Uh, I mean, you know, they were just uh, straightjacketed in their investigation. And it's, it's, it's simply amazing. And yet, like you said, everybody was so caught up in the emotion of the moment, and the news media just kept us running from pillar to post that uh, nobody stopped and think. I, you know, I was going, wait a minute, the thing that tipped me off was like an hour later, you know, here the buildings are destroyed, the planes are destroyed, whoever was in them is disintegrated, and yet the government says, Osama bin Laden did this. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking back to the Kennedy assassination, you know, an hour after the shooting, they're saying, well, we got a guy named Lee Harvey Oswald, he did it all by himself. How do they know that? How could they possibly know that in such a short period of time? But, hey, it's just, I don't know, but you have to think about it. For example, here's have you ever thought about this? We're told the leader of the hijackers, Mohammed Atta, um, left his rent car in the parking lot at Boston Logan Airport with a suitcase in the back filled with the Koran, flight instructions, uh, you know, all of this incriminating evidence. Uh, hey, wait a minute. He's going on a suicide mission, so he packs a suitcase? <laughs> okay. Well, now, wait a minute. Okay. Maybe he packed a suitcase so he could pose as a normal air traveler, right? So why leave it in the car? Mm-hmm. I mean, now this makes it. It was planted evidence, and when nobody would stop and think, well, you know, why did he leave it in the car? <laughs> you know, what's with that anyway? Absolutely. Well, Jim, let's do a whole show on that sometime, because as, as more information comes out, it's it's fascinating and people need to know the truth that's true if you go back and reread my the Terra conspiracy you're going to find that just about everything we've talked about is was in there and i had that back uh as far back as 2002 but uh i had uh, a uh, contract with our mutual boss and somebody who uh high up there who admitted she had not even read the book decided they had to cancel it because they didn't want to upset the families of 9-11 victims. Well, excuse me, the families that were pushing for a truthful yeah, investigation. All right, well, thank you, Jim, for joining us. The new book is called The Sisterhood of the Rose. Go to jimmars.com, linked up right on SpookySouthCoast.com. Until next week, stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow. supernatural is something that isn't supposed